Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. For Cornwallis and and other men who served in the war, there was a deep sense of hurt pride, hurt national pride and hurt personal pride of having lost the war, having lost large portions of a continent. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Douglas Dorney discussing his new profile of General Charles Cornwallis. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the Small Battle Series, with two new releases, The Battle of Musgrove's Mill, 1782, by John Buchanan, and The Battle of Harlem Heights, 1776, by David Price. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor Douglas Dorney, and he'll be discussing a fresh look at General Charles Cornwallis. You know, one of the problems we fall into, and boy do I say that a lot on this show, is that we often take a biased approach as Americans toward the American Revolution, and that's understood. We definitely had skin in the game, as we'll say. Um, But as historians, we really have to strive to remain impartial. Really to just call balls and strikes when we can. And when you do that, when you give a fair shake to the British perspective and the people involved, you'll get a much more nuanced view of the revolution uh, and a much better handle on all of the moving parts of the event. Charles Cornwallis is a figure that I think more than most uh, has suffered from that bias that we have. He's a very interesting character. He's a fascinating public servant throughout almost his entire life. And if you understand his worldview, I think you really can get a new appreciation for the British perspective on empire and revolution. Douglas Dorney reminds us of that in his new article. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Douglas Dorney. Douglas Dorney, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. Remind us about your background. Yeah, this is a little bit different. I'm, I'm not a professional historian. I'm an architect by training and profession. So I've been an architect, a registered architect now for, oh my gosh, um, like 15 years or so. I've been in the profession since 1996 or so. So, and that's been, that's my training. I have degrees in architecture and um, that's what I've been doing. Uh, uh, that's what I do during the week and, and during daylight hours. And then in the evenings I, I do, um, in the weekends I do research and, and write since about 2015. So, um, you know, my, my entree into historical writing and, and becoming an author, uh, mostly for, for the journal of the American revolution has been, you know, I took a class in 2003. It was just a, an extra you know, it was like a, a class of personal enlightenment. I think it was 2003, right about the time of the Iraq war. And it was, um, I'm just interested in military history. And one of the first things we did in, in, in the class was like the first weekend 
there was an optional field trip to um, Kings Mountain National Battlefield in South Carolina. So this is, I was in Charlotte, lived in Charlotte at the time, Charlotte, North Carolina. And um, it was just, you know, world opened up to me. And it was also the, the aspect of, of visiting a battlefield um, that you didn't know about. And it was a very personal connection for me. Um, but one of the things that struck me having lived in Charlotte was the park ranger said, um, you know, there was a battle in downtown Charlotte and the British army was there. This, this battle at Kings Mountain was basically a detachment of, of a detachment and the main army was in Charlotte. And I didn't know that I lived in downtown Charlotte at the time. And it was, it was kind of amazing. <laughs> it opened up a world to me and I had to know more about it. And that really got me to where I am today. So um, I just devout for about 10 years, I devout everything I, I could on, the revolution in the Carolinas, the revolution in general, and, and about 2015, I started um, um, writing about it. Um, and then, uh, so, so that's that's really the um, where, where I am today. Is, is that's become a like a really a major hobby here in the past um, several years of researching and writing. And it and, and maybe as you know, it kind of snowballs that the more you research, the more topics open up to you, and the more avenues open up, and you have to go track them down and. and for me, it's it's writing about them. I think writing has been writing is a challenge. Maybe it is for everybody, but it, it it was for me at least to put something out there and have someone read it and consider publishing it. So that was that took about ten years for me. But um, I guess since 20, 2019, I've been publishing articles pretty pretty uh, regular, fairly regularly, maybe like one or two a year um, since then. And um, you know, it's, it's a it's a do an article and then move on to another topic and research and and uh, write about it. Um, so I think I've got six articles on the journal, on the journal of the American revolution and a few articles in some other journals and book reviews and some other projects that are, that are kind of snowballing all because of the journal of the American revolution, which I, you know, and, and as a closing note to that question, I really appreciate the journal in the sense that, um, being an architect and not someone with a terminal degree, not someone with a PhD that, um, that people who who can write well and can research well and have interesting topics can publish there. Um, um, that, that's that's just been amazing to me and very worthwhile and very gratifying that the journal publishes, you know, will allow pretty you know anyone who has a good idea and has a good topic and good research and good writing to to publish. Uh, so that's that has been very rewarding to me personally. What first drew your interest into this topic? Um, yeah, I mean, this goes back to the first question was, was, um, was really, I had my first, my first bit of research I ever did was, was a battle that happened in Charlotte, North Carolina in 1780. It's basically the first invasion of, of North Carolina by Cornwallis in September and September to October of 1780. So I published that article in a British journal. It's pretty long, about 10, 12,000 words, something like that, um, and it was published in a, in a British journal in, I think, 2021, some, somewhere in the 2020 during the pandemic. And then uh, a few months later, the, the, um, the, the, the editor reached out to me and said, well, you just did this article on basically it was on Cornwallis. Why don't you do a book review for us on Richard Middleton's new book titled Cornwallis? So that was really the, 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 the start of this article was um, they sent me the free book, of course, as you do when you, when you do a book review. And, um, and um, it was like in the first couple pages, I knew it was going to be an article because it just opened up all these avenues, all these questions, all these 
you know, a lot of the myths were broken in the first few pages of, of this book, particularly his early life in, 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 in Parliament, um, where you know, some, some of the some of the the aspects of that, like he was a he was a Whig politician. I knew that, but I didn't know to the extent that he was a Whig politician. There's some of the some of the the claims in the book, um, by Middleton really really piqued my interest, and I knew at least at least coming out of the book review once that was done, and that was really a topic of of some pretty what hope what hopefully would be some pretty interesting research. So that was really the the the, the, um, the starting point, and that was two years ago. Tell us about Charles Cornwallis' military career before the Revolution. Yeah, so so uh, Corn, Cornwallis was uh, you know in the seventeen he was born in seventeen thirty eight and um, you know by I think by seventeen fifty seven when he was just a young man uh, traveled to Europe. I, I, I maybe want to say it was sort of a grand tour, but he eventually found himself at a at a military military academy in Turin, Italy. Um, my understanding was that there wasn't a formal British military education system like Sandhurst or, or West Point in, in, in this country at that time. So, you know, he found what what military education he could in Turin. He had a, I believe, a, a minder, or I don't know if minder is the right word, but he had a a host who was with him, um, and that was right about the time that the French, uh, the French and Indian War and the Seven Years' War. Uh, began so he was he was in Europe uh, during during the start of this Seven Years' War, and he found his way to Geneva, and he he attached himself to what I understand the the, the Duke of Ferdinand's British forces there, and he served in Germany Germany for for several years. He was at the Battle of uh, Minden and Bellinghausen. Uh, he returned to Britain at some point at some point in his few years. And by I believe 1761, he was back in Germany as a lieutenant colonel. So I mentioned he was he was um, he was the captain in the 85th regiment, as I understand it. And then returning 1761, returned to Germany. And by 1762, his his father had died. The the, uh, the first Lord Cornwallis had passed away. Uh, so I believe he was in the House of Lords. And and the way that <laughs> works out as I understand it, as I've learned, is, is that uh, you know if you're if you're a peer and and, and you're uh, you die, you, you know it's a hereditary title. Um, so so in 1762, Cornwallis returned to England to serve in the House of Lords. Doug, talk about his political career leading up to the conflict. Yeah, so so my my understanding was um, from this is from reading um, A.J. O'Shaughnessy's. Uh, the Men Who Lost America, if, that's, if I have that title right. Um, another fascinating book, in addition to Richard Milton's Cornwallis book, I read these at the same time, um, interestingly enough, but my understanding was that Cornwallis was the most aristocratic of the men who lost America. Uh, so very much a, a, a wealthy upbringing. And along with that came people in power. Uh, so uh, as as I've learned, uh, in the House of Lords, uh, there were some familial connections some, 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 uh, through through his father to Lords Temple and Shelbourne, Shelbourne who were prominent Whig politicians of, of the day. So Cornwallis very much, it seems to me, at least initially in his Israeli career in par- Parliament in 1762, 
probably through about 1768, 1770, was for all for the lack of uh, for the lack <laughs> the lack of a better term, generally speaking, a, a Whig, which is more in the you know the more in the, the, the left leaning, more liberal side of, of of British politics at the time. And, and one of the most interesting things that 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 um, occurred or that was written about in the, in the, in the biography by Milton was his association with the, the radical John Wilkes, uh, who, who I understand does, does not have a, a, a great reputation. I don't know if you, if you know too much about John Wilkes. I, I do not, but um, it, that, that seemed to be a very, very interesting relationship or at least interesting interest from Cornwallis and John Wilkes's battles for seditious libel and those sorts of things. So, so Wilkes was very much a radical and I believe he was very, very connected to Lord Temple, who was one of his political uh, allies. So there's there's an interesting, one of the more interesting parts in the in the article that are was Cornwallis's um, defense or support of, of John Wilkes after he was arrested. Uh, and one of the one of the sources I found described uh, a parade to see Wilkes after he was arrested. I believe it was in the Tower of London, but it was called the most classy protest march in history. I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing there, but it was essentially uh, 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 many of Wilkes' supporters who were lords and members of parliament and his lawyers and other business people marched to see him in in the Tower of London to support him. And Cornwallis was one of those men, and as, as it was, as the, as the sources say. So I thought that was very interesting that an aristocratic um, and maybe silver spoon <laughs> young man uh, was, 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 was in close contact with uh, basically a radical firebrand uh, by the name of John Wilkes uh, to the extent that Cornwallis was also seen with Wilkes in Hyde Park after the incident uh, later in the year, if I remember correctly. So that was very interesting that Cornwallis kept some very, some very Whiggish company uh, which which generally opposed the king on on increasingly on many of his King George III on many of his proposals in Parliament. Um, so that was that was that, I found that pretty interesting. And also, you know, apparently Cornwallis also supported um, the colonists in regard to the Stamp Act. There's some there's some there's some uh, there's some I don't know conflicting opinions about whether Cornwallis actually voted against the, the Stamp Act, but it seems pretty clear that he was against the Stamp Act. Uh, and he also was uh, opposed the Declaratory, the Declaratory Act, can't say that properly, uh, later in 1766. Uh, so he was one of, as I understand it, one of five members of the House of Lords to oppose the second reading of the Declaratory Act, which basically codified that, that Britain can legislate however it wanted to in regard to the American colonies. So that was, that was very much a surprise for me um, to learn that Cornwallis, who was aristocratic and, and also at this time, he, he, he was basically aide-de-camp to the king. He was also awarded that position or, or granted that position, that someone in that position could be opposed to the king's policies and someone who was in close contact with the king. So that was, that was very interesting to see. Doug, how would you characterize his service during the American Revolution? Um, I, I would say that, um, you know, my main area of focus has been 
you know, the southern colonies. Um, um, I know he served served in, in the northern colonies or in Pennsylvania and the middle colonies. But I, I would say in terms of his service during the American Revolution, I would call him a very competent general, but but he made some strategic errors, uh, at least three as I can as, as I can see in in the southern colonies. I think that you know the, the, the first error was was that you know he invaded North Carolina once and that was an ill advised campaign on on most if not all accounts and then you know as I think that the second campaign in 1781 was was ill advised for the for the most part. <laughs> um and then I, I think you know the, the third error I see it's just the strategic error I see um, and, that he made was, was of course, leaving the Carolinas and, and moving into Virginia, which I think that's everyone, most most most, most students of, of the revolution are aware of that, and but maybe not the first two. But but on all counts, I think he tactically he was a very competent general. I think there's that's that seems pretty clear to me that uh, on the battlefield um, um, and in the organization of his army and, and logistics. Uh, if you read the Cornwallis papers, the several volumes in the Cornwallis papers, I think that comes out pretty, pretty clearly. But it's it's also clear that by uh, mid 1781 that there's a uh, uh, maybe a, a strategic incoherence that that comes up, at least at least for me in in his in his thinking, um, and I think it ultimately led to to his army's downfall in 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 uh, in late 1781. How does Cornwallis return to public life after this war? Yeah, so he, he uh, Cornwallis in 1782 returned to England on parole. Uh, and as I understand it, there, there was some fanfare, uh, maybe maybe contrary to what, what some might believe, that he was received almost as a hero. Um, there, there's a report in the Middleton uh, book of bells ringing when Cornwallis returned to I believe that's one of the ports in England. So he was received pretty favorably in England. And, and uh, as I recall, he went directly to the king to, to, to give his account of the war. And um, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm actually kind of amazed at that, that, that someone, someone who surrendered an army and basically ended the military conflict of the war was seen as somewhat of a hero, if not an actual hero by some, um, so, so that I thought that was interesting, and then, and then there's the aspect of of him, also, you know, the Clinton Cornwallis controversy with General Clinton in 1783, um, which Cornwallis is generally believed to have come out on the better side of. I, I also have a little bit of an issue with that as well. That that I actually think that that General Clinton made some pretty good points that Cornwallis, you know, Cornwallis didn't didn't heed his instructions and it resulted in, in Yorktown. But um, yeah, by, by 1783, you see Cornwallis uh, reemerge in the political sphere, mostly in, in terms of being uh, considered for a position in India. So pretty much by the time Cornwallis gets back to, to London, most of what I recall, um, most, of, most of what I can, what I've researched is that he's almost immediately considered as a as a, uh, a commander in chief, if not a governor, uh, for consideration in, in India. Uh, and, and at the time, there was a lot of uh, quite a bit of, of, of um, 
political activity on reforming the East India Company. So that's something I didn't know about when I started the article was, is that the East India Company, you know, something, it's something, you know, the whole, the idea of it is very foreign to, to, um, to, to the American sensibilities in terms of the East India Company controlled basically India. It's a private, basically a private entity that controlled for the better, for for the lack of a better word, a continent, you know, in continent of, of India. And it was very badly mismanaged. So right about the time in 1783, when, when Cornwallis was sort of a political independent, uh, I think he, he, he really tried to, to keep away from the, the fray of, of, of politics, as he saw it. I think he saw that the, the Whigs or the opposition, as he, as he called them, were, were becoming more and more radical. Um, that they, they they were they wanted parliamentary reforms. I think that the American War had had had, had uncovered some issues that some in the Whig faction felt need, needed to be addressed. And Cornwallis saw those as as almost, as, as revolutionary and almost um, insurrectionist in nature. So so I think he he tried to stay out of politics, but but also at the same time I felt that he uh, it's pretty clear that he was also lobbying for the position in India is very interested in it in, in his letters. And I think he very much wanted to be uh, governor general and commander in chief in India. And I, th- India, and I think that's a, that's a very important point. I think the, that's, a, that's actually a lesson from the American war it, uh, for him, at least is that he demanded to have both the administrative and the military control of, 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 of Bengal in, 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 in India. Uh, so I think that's very much a, a result of, of a lesson learned, so to speak. He has a very eventful tenure as Governor General of Bengal in India. It's really like another life. Uh, tell us about that time, if you could. <laughs> yeah, you know where where do where do you start? Um, you know, it's 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 really amazing. So he spent seven and a half, eight years in in, in India. Uh, like right, right from 1786 through 1793, and um, you know there there are large portions. There 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 is actually a book written about Cornwallis and Bengal. It's called Cornwallis and Bengal. I, I don't recall the author, but it was uh, used it pretty handily for for the article. Um, but yeah, it, it's the, the 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 problems in India take up. And both of the main biographies of Cornwallis take up a substantial amount of, of, of paper. Uh, you know, the, it was just a, a litany of, of problems in India preceding Cornwallis with the East India Company. So there was a there was an East India um, Company Act, I believe, in 1784. I don't think that's the right name for it, but there was a, an Act of Parliament which gave Cornwallis. Um, uh, which gave Cornwallis a lot of leeway in making substantial changes. And also he's basically directed to reform the entire administration of, of India. So, um, you know, the, 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 the amount of problems there were, are, are pretty, <laughs> pretty legendary. Um, you know, one of them was land reform. Um, uh, there was a, uh, he instituted, some, instituted something called the permanent settlement, which reformed land ownership. So before that, there was really no land ownership, but the permanent settlement, as it was called, awarded uh, Indians, uh, um, um, Indian landlords, ownership of the land, and they could, they could, um, with with that ownership, they they the 
the tax system was was uh, uh, made much more efficient. Uh, there was expected income. The tax rates were standardized, and the the system of farming was was greatly enhanced. Uh, that was one that was one big big aspect of one big accomplishment of Cornwallis. There's some debate on um, whether or not it was actually uh, helped or hurt the, 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 the actual farmers who, who were basically serfs, as I understand it. But that was one accomplishment. And Cornwallis also, uh, I think one of, the, one of the main points uh, was that he reformed the, the criminal and civil codes there. So the criminal codes were, were very, I would think, by modern standards, barbaric in, in a lot of ways. There's capital punishment, certainly, as a result of, of traditions in India. Uh, Hindu and, 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 and Muslim law going back uh, many centuries, but um, you know the, a lot of the, the the punishment for crimes included dismemberment and, and things like that. And there was there was also some some pretty extraordinary conditions where you where someone could could basically buy their freedom if they were accused of a crime. Um, so so a lot of what Cornwallis did was standardize the legal systems in more in, in, a, in a kind of European to a more European standard by also well, European standard while also accounting for local traditions and customs. So it was, it was a compromise. Um, um, so yeah, there, there are so many aspects of, of Cornwallis in India, um, you know, the land settlement, the, the criminal codes, and, and then there was uh, issues of slavery. Slavery was pretty widespread in India, um, not necessarily chattel slavery as we would know in the, in the in the Western Hemisphere, but a different kind of slavery that was pretty endemic to the cultures there. And he, he had he had ideas about it. He wanted to end slavery there um, for a number of reasons. Some of them were were economic. Um, some of them were competition by other Europeans enslaving Indians. Uh, um, but but there was also a humanitarian concern about about um, about you know, the, the horrors of, of something like child slavery, which seems pretty endemic there at the time. So, so yeah, there, there's a, there's, you know, there is a, a, there are a number, there are so many accomplishments of, of Cornwallis in India and, uh, you know, all of these accomplishments were, were uh, ensconced and in, in, codified in, in 1793, the year that he left. Uh, and, and all these, all of these, uh, all of these, Aspects of the improvements were are called the Cornwallis Code today. Uh, it wasn't called that at the time, but but all of these codifications, the system became known as the Cornwallis Code, and and I really think that it was the, the first inkling of a uh, of a of a sort of informal constitution for India. Uh, I think that would, would come later, of course, and independence would come later. But but I think Cornwallis started that. Um, um, so, yeah, I think that was a, a very big accomplishment. How does this article help us understand the revolutionary era better? Well, I have a little bit of a unique perspective on this. Um, you know, I, th- I think that, you know, one of the things I struggled with um, with submitting the article to the Journal of the American Revolution was whether or not to submit it at all, because it wasn't it was decidedly not about the American Revolution. You know, I purposely didn't talk about the American Revolution, but... But you know, for me, um, for for me, it was really about showing the other side of a coin. That you know, here in America, we have a we have a certain perspective about the American Revolution. That uh, you know, it was the founding of our country. 
the founding of our you know, of, of so many things, our, our system of law, our constitution, uh, and and there, you know, if you look back at that at that generation, people they were very proud to have, have been part of the revolution. At least that's been my experience. That you know, if you look at things like pension applications, which I which I study quite a bit, that the men are very proud about their service in the American Revolution, even in the 1830s. On the other side of that, um, one of the things that that has been increasingly more obvious to me is that the and this I think this is self-evident, but and maybe not talked about very much. But you know, the the American Revolution for the British Empire was was pretty horrific. In, in, in some ways that there, I think there was for Cornwallis and, and other men who served in the war, there was a deep sense of hurt pride, hurt national pride and hurt personal pride of having lost the war, having lost large portions of a continent. And um, I, I think one of the, one of the things about the revolutionary era to, to understand for everyone is that, you know, Britain struggled for a number of years to reestablish their their empire, so to speak. And Cornwallis is a big part of that. Um, and there's a, there's a, a line in the article about uh, you know Cornwallis was a major figure in reestablishing, uh, reaffirming uh, the British Empire after its greatest defeat. So so yeah, I think that um, you know that I think that was really striking to see someone write that those are not my words but but i think that does what uh what we're coming to understand about cornwallis is that there's very much he's very much a, a an, uh, an excellent administrator uh in in bengal and also uh, as governor uh, general and commander-in-chief in ireland as well after after bengal from 1798 to 1801 so on two important places in the British Empire, he, he solidified and reasserted the British Empire after its greatest defeat. And I think that's a remarkable, uh, a remarkable set of accomplishments for a uh, man who, for a man who surrendered an army at Yorktown and lost the better part of the continent as, as a result. Douglas Dorney, thanks again. Thank you. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long. <laughs>